kind of awkward if you think about it, right? I mean, how often do you gather with a group of people who you don't know and sing about somebody else's blood? Sounds kind of morbid and cultish, in fact, doesn't it? And then if you know, if you've been at Park Community Church for any length of time, you know that every Sunday we have this little experience after the sermon where you come forward or you go to the back and, and you have a little cracker in the world's smallest shot glass of grape juice, which is supposed to symbolize blood. What, what, what is this all about? Today we're asking the question, why do we take communion? And we want to answer that question and dive into that. And I would guess all of us in this room at least most of us have had an awkward communion experience. Yes? Maybe it was here at this church. Maybe you're newer and you're like, am I allowed to go and, and do that? And, or, or maybe you, you know, you feel comfortable visiting the table, but the person on the inside of the pew isn't moving and you're wondering, well, can I tap them on the shoulder and get them to move so that I can go to the table and I can take communion? Or maybe like, like me, you were at a different tradition, a different denomination's service. I remember when I was six, being at my great uncle's funeral at Holy Rosary Catholic Church in South Minneapolis. And it came time to take communion, and, and I didn't grow up Catholic. My family's Catholic, and, and my dad became a Protestant Christian later in his life. But I knew some of the Catholic traditions, and so this time came at this funeral celebration for communion. And I, and I knew that I wasn't Catholic, so I was like, am I allowed to go or not? And I remember getting up and getting in the line and coming forward and, and trying to figure out how am I supposed to hold my hands? Is the priest going to know that I'm faking it? And then I hear that they have wine. I've never tasted wine before. What's this going to taste like? And, and we're all supposed to drink out of the same cup, but he has a, he has a cloth, so he's going to wipe it clean. Is that enough to get rid of the germs? Actually, I was six. I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> but, but we've had those type of experiences, right, around this idea of communion. We wonder, what are the rules? Am I allowed to take it here in this church with these people? Who, who presides over it? Maybe you've been in a youth group before where the youth pastor's like, hey, we've got Mountain Dew and Doritos. Let's take communion together. I was a youth pastor for a while. We never did that. You wonder, will I be judged if I take communion? Will I be judged if I don't take communion? Are people watching me? Do, do, do these elements, the cracker and the cup, do they actually turn into Jesus' body and blood once they go into my system? Because certain traditions teach that. Or, or is the, the presence of Christ mysteriously in these elements, in, with, around, under, through them? Or, or are they just elements? Are they just cracker and juice here to symbolize something? And what does God think about all of this? Right? And we've had these questions, we've had these thoughts, and so this morning, I want us to engage this question, why do we take communion? I want us to answer that question, and I, I hope that it encourages our faith and it builds our faith, and that we have a, a, a unified understanding of what communion is and why we do it here at Park Community Church. To answer this question, let's go to Jesus. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. It's on page 881 in the Pew Bible. And what better way to answer the question, why take communion, than to look at Jesus' teaching of communion, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to have you stand as I read this passage. It's on page 881 in the Pew Bible, Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 23. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. 
So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles around him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this. God, I pray that you would make this word come alive to us today as we seek to understand why we observe this tradition, why we take communion. Meet us where we're at, Lord, this morning. All of us have different background, different tradition, different understanding of this, and lead us to where you desire us to be, in your presence, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We pray these things in your strong, precious, powerful, and sufficient name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may have a seat. Let me summarize this passage this morning for us and give you the answer to why we take communion, and then we'll walk through this passage and this answer to understand it. We take communion. Here's the big idea this morning. We take communion to remember the past, to celebrate the present, and to anticipate the future. We take communion to remember the past, to celebrate the present, and to anticipate the future. So as we want to understand this idea of communion, we have to start with where Jesus starts. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He instituted communion, and it started with a remembrance of the past. Jesus says here in this text, and we've all heard this connected to communion, that we do this in remembrance of him. That Jesus says, as often as you do this, as you remember me, and so, so we, in the New Testament covenant, we'll get into this. We look back and we remember Jesus. But the first communion, the first Lord's Supper, it started with Jesus and his disciples remembering the past. The context of Luke chapter 22, which we just read, was Jesus and his disciples, the apostles, remembering the Passover. They were celebrating the Passover meal. And so if you're unfamiliar with the Passover, you can read about this in Exodus 11, 12, and 13. We're not going to go there today and read three chapters of Scripture to give us background. I'll summarize it for you. But if you want to go into Scripture and look it up yourself, that's where you can go. Exodus chapters 11, 12, and 13. And I highly encourage you to. It's a fascinating read. And it helps to bring communion into light. But let me summarize it for you. Many of you know it. Some of you may not be as aware of what the Passover is. The Passover was this yearly feast that the people of God, that Israel, that the Jews would have. They would celebrate God delivering them out of Egypt. Now, the story, remember, God had 
God had led his people to Egypt to provide for them in a time of great famine. And then they got stuck there, and they got enslaved there. So Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians. They were treated as slaves. They were oppressed. There were about a million or so Israelites enslaved by Egypt. And then God called Moses to lead them out. God sent Moses back to Egypt after he'd grown up there and he'd been taken away, and then he went back into Egypt to deliver God's people Israel from oppression, from being enslaved by the Egyptians. And so if you remember the story, God came with plagues to warn Pharaoh. There was plague after plague after plague, 10 different plagues, trying to to warn Pharaoh and to show Pharaoh that Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Israelite people, the God who has created all things, is the one true God and he's in charge. And, And his powers are greater than the pagan God's powers. And he rules over all. And yet Pharaoh's heart remained hard towards God. And so the last and final plague was that the angel of death came into Egypt and took all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. The angel of death took their life that night. Now, if you remember, the Israelite sons were spared. They were spared because God had said, if you take a sacrificial lamb and take the blood from that lamb and spread that blood on your doorposts, the angel of death will pass you over. That's why it's called the Passover. And so we see here in Luke chapter 22, Jesus and his disciples, they're remembering the past. They're doing the yearly tradition, the the Passover feast, the feast of unleavened bread. They're remembering what God has done for his people in delivering them out of bondage and delivering them out of slavery. And so they would gather together and they would eat this meal, they would feast, they would drink fine wine, and they would have unleavened bread because of this unleavened bread, this flat bread which hasn't had a chance to rise, it, it was a command from God for them to have this prepared and ready because they would leave in haste that night. So the angel death death sweeps through and it kills all the firstborn Egyptian sons and Pharaoh cries out and he commands God's people, Israel, to leave. Get out of here. Go. And so they leave in haste and they have bread in their packs and and they head off into the wilderness. But because they had blood on their doorposts, the angel of death passed over and didn't take their firstborn sons. And so every year, Israel, God's people, would gather together. They would have this meal, and they would be reminded of God's deliverance, God's provision for them. And then they went off into the wilderness. And as their food ran out, what happened? Bread came down from heaven, manna. God provided. And so every year, Israel would gather together, and they're they're actually commanded in Exodus chapter 13 to have this feast a feast of remembrance. They're remembering the past. And so God's people every year would gather together to remember the Passover, remember where God spared their lives and set them free from Egypt, God's deliverance. The significance of wine at this meal was, was the symbol of, Jesus's, of, the, of the blood of the lamb. We can't get to Jesus yet. That's coming. Right now we're remembering the past. Wine would symbolize the blood of the lamb that was put on their doorposts, which spared their life. And the bread at this meal symbolized the unleavened bread that God provided for them in the desert, in the wilderness, and also as they left Egypt. They would gather and they would eat these meals together to remember the past. They would also gather to remember the old covenant. God gave them signs and meals throughout 
the scriptures to remind them of his faithfulness. And so God had made a covenant with Israel, his people. Not, not, a, not a, a conditional agreement that if you do all these things, I will do all these things. And there was some conditional agreements within this covenant, but ultimately it was a greater thing. God made a covenant. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Regardless of your disobedience, regardless of your sin, and we see this throughout the history of the Old Testament, that God's people rebelled. They hardened their hearts. Like Pharaoh, they actually hardened their heart towards God, but God continued to lead them. He continued to provide for them. He continued to love them. Sometimes his love meant like letting them go into exile. Sometimes his love was disciplinary love that was correcting them and redirecting them, but he upholded his end of the covenant. That I will be your God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And so as Israel would gather for the Sabbath, they would remember the Passover and they would celebrate the old covenant that God is for his people, that God has made a way, that God continues to deliver his people and set his people free. So that's the context and the history of the Lord's Supper as we know it here in 2019. It started with Jesus having this Passover meal with his disciples. And as we see him in this text here, Luke 22, say, he he tells them to do this in remembrance of him. So he takes this symbolic Passover meal as they look back at God's covenant faithfulness in the Old Testament, remembering the Passover, remembering the Old Covenant. Jesus takes this meal and, and he tells his followers, now we're his followers 2,000 years later, he tells his followers to do this meal, to have this meal, to, to use these symbols, the bread and the wine, as a representative and a reminder of him. Jesus is remembering the past and he's telling us to remember the past. We are God's people now. Most of us in this room, Gentiles, are not ethnic Jews, but we are grafted in to God's people, to God's family. And so when we take communion, we actually ought to be remembering God's faithfulness to his people. Sometimes, and not not every week, and it depends on where you're at and what the Lord is doing in your life and how the Holy Spirit is leading you, but sometimes when we celebrate communion, when we take communion together, we actually ought to bring our thoughts all the way back to God's covenant faithfulness to his people Israel, to to leading the Jews out of exile, out of, to, to bringing them to bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And then later on, they were in exile and he brought them back. God is faithful. We remember the past. Communion is a way to celebrate who God is and what he's done in keeping his covenant faithfulness. But it's not only about the past, it's also about the present. We take communion to celebrate the present. And this is where it gets really good for us. Okay, So we take communion. Part of our taking of communion is to remember God's past faithfulness. It's to, to think about the Passover in the Old Covenant and the way that God continues to pursue his people. But then ultimately we move into celebration. We celebrate the present, the new covenant. Look at what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. It says, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, and you'll notice if you, as we read this, there was two cups, there was actually four cups. They would actually have four glasses of wine throughout this dinner. Great dinner to be a part of. So they're on the second cup now, and Jesus, as he takes the second cup, he says, this is, this cup, verse 20, is poured out for you, is the, is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus here, what he's doing is he's saying, you as, as Jewish followers, as, as Israelites, his disciples here, as he's 
with them. They're celebrating Passover, this, this Israelite festival. It's like the equivalent of Americans celebrating the 4th of July, right? This was this marker for Israel. And as they're having this meal together, Jesus says, okay, you know of the old covenant faithfulness of God. Now there's a new covenant, and it's me. It's my blood, As you drink this wine, no longer are you thinking about the blood that covered the doorposts. But but, but I'm shifting communion now from from being about how God cared for the Israelites in the past with the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. And you're about to see, this is entering into Holy Week. So in in the calendar here, this is the week that Jesus is crucified on the cross. It's the beginning events. And it's it's the beginning events of his, his journey to the cross. And so what he's doing there is he's trying to get the disciples to understand that from now on when you have this meal, when you drink this wine, yes, you're going to remember my faithfulness to, to your forefathers. You're going to remember the blood of the sacrificial lamb. But, but now I want you to shift that into this reminder that there's a new covenant and it's my blood which is about to be shed for you. Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. To understand this new covenant, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It's on page 660 in the Pew Bible. A beautiful picture of this covenant. What is Jesus fulfilling? He's fulfilling God's covenant promise. He is the new covenant. Listen to what that means. Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. See, there's the remembering the past. God's old faithful covenant bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. But this is a new covenant. Verse 32 in the middle. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and, they, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is an Old Testament prophecy about the one who will come and establish a new covenant. He will fulfill the Old Testament law. He will fulfill the Old Covenant, and he institutes this new covenant. This prophecy here is about Jesus. And it's saying that, yes, we still have to teach one another. So verse 34, it says, no longer will each one teach his neighbor. Well, Jesus actually gives us the commission to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. But what he's doing here, what this prophecy is saying is that there's going to come a day where God's law is written on people's hearts, where the Holy Spirit, the living Spirit of God is now dwelling in his people. When God has fulfilled the Old Testament law through a sacrificial lamb, not the lamb who was slain and the, and the blood was spread on the doorpost, but the Son of God is slain and his blood now covers the sins of the people. And this Holy Spirit, the living Spirit of God is given to these people and he will live within them. And so, yes, we still need to teach one another the things of God. But it's different than the Old Testament where we had to teach the law and, and show people who God was through kind of this, uh, this moral conforming to the law. Now there's this internal change. 
God, the creator of all things, is living and active in us through his Holy Spirit, and he's revealing to us what is right, what is wrong, and how to please God. And look at the end of verse 34. Our iniquities have been forgiven, and our sins are remembered no more. Now, this doesn't mean that God forgets the past and actually forgets our sin. He doesn't hold it against us. That's the, the promised prophecy of the Old Testament, that this new covenant is coming. And so, church, you need to know the significance of Luke 22, verse 20. When Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood, what he's telling us is that now this is true. Amazing? That, that no longer do we have to make sacrifice for our sins. Because Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. He is the new covenant. Jesus is the new Passover. It's, it's his body and his blood that we celebrate. It wasn't the sacrificial lamb. So no longer when we, when we gather together, we can remember God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. But when we gather and when we take communion, we're actually celebrating what's currently happening now. That Jesus is redeeming a people for himself. That Jesus has made the final sacrifice. And so this is where remembering and celebrating come together. We remember the past that Jesus made a sacrifice once and for all. That his blood was shed for us. That God would remember our sins no more and not hold our iniquities against us. We celebrate that decisive event that happened on the cross. But we also celebrate the present event of what he's doing. He's continuing to redeem people. This, wasn't, this event happened one time. But it's continually effective for all who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood was shed. Like in Israel, the, the lamb was slain and the blood was spread on the doorpost. Now Jesus' blood was shed. And anyone who would come to him and, and place their faith in him is covered by his blood. He is the new Passover church. He symbolizes, when, when Jesus says, this is my body, verse 19. Look at verse 19 of Luke 22 with me. It says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. Remember, this is unleavened bread. It's flat, crusty bread, similar to what we have. I don't think theirs was gluten-free. Ours is gluten-free now. Praise the Lord. All of those of you who need gluten-free bread, you can have that. But it's, it's flat and crusty, and it symbolizes the same bread that they had, unleavened bread. He says, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is the new Passover. He's reminding his disciples, and now by extension 2,000 years later, us, that he is the new bread of life. When they had the Passover celebration, they remembered that God provided for them unleavened bread and also manna from heaven. And so when Jesus sits with his disciples and he breaks this bread and he gives it to them and says, this is my body given for you, he's not saying this is my actual body. That would have been weird because his body's there, right? He, he's with them. His physical body is there present with them. He's saying this is symbolic. This bread symbolizes my body. It's my body given for you. And, and his disciples, and by extension us, 2,000 years later, were supposed to be reminded that his body is God's provision for our sin, for our need, for our spiritual hunger. 
God provided bread from heaven to the Israelites in the wilderness. And now Jesus is saying, God has provided me from above to fill your spiritual hunger. This is my body. Take this in remembrance of me. Jesus is the new Passover. He replaces the the unleavened bread with himself. Jesus is the new Passover in that he becomes the blood by whom sins are forgiven, by whom, whom we are passed over. He is the sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed on our behalf that death might pass us over, church. So, so when Jesus says, this is the cup, verse 20, that is poured out for you, it is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying he used to celebrate Passover, drinking that cup of wine, remembering the blood that was put on the doorpost from the sacrificial lamb that, that covered your sin. Now it's my blood applied to your life in which you are passed over. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? It has no more power over you if you are covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the new Passover. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one by whose blood we are forgiven. Jesus is the new Passover. And then lastly, as we celebrate the present, we're also celebrating this new community that Jesus is creating, the church. Jesus has this meal with a group of disciples from different families, different backgrounds. He's creating this new church. They were, they were all Jews here in this setting, but as we continue on in the scriptures, we see Gentiles being invited into this family. This new family is being created. And, and this meal is a way that we demonstrate this new family. It's this new community, the church that God is building through the blood of Jesus Christ. Communion is a communal act. And we see that right here, right? It was based in this communal celebration, in this, in this great feast. And, and so our little celebration here is nothing like what they did. I mean, they would spend hours eating and drinking and rejoicing together. So actually, we should do that. We should get into one another's homes We should get into one another's lives. We should sit at table together and we should eat and we should drink and we should fellowship and we should laugh and we should remember how God has been faithful to us and we should talk about what Jesus has done for us. That's genuine communion. Here, when we gather together as a church family, this is just to remind us. It's to celebrate the present that he's created a new family and the best way you can celebrate that is by scattering into each other's homes and eating together. But then also when we gather, we want to be reminded that Jesus is creating this new community. He he commands his followers that as they gather, to remember and to celebrate who he is and what he's done. So this is a communal act. It's like baptism. Baptism is a public declaration of an internal change. Communion is the same. It's It's a public declaration. It's a public communication that you believe who Jesus is and what he's done. That when you drink the cup, you're saying, I believe the blood of Jesus is enough. That it cleanses me of all my sin. I believe that, that the body of Christ, that, that Jesus himself satisfies my hungry soul. That he is the bread of life. Communion forces us to both be seen and to see. Oh church, this is, this is so good and so important. 
in our society where people are lonely and, and society is fractured and people are deeply desiring unity and belonging but struggling to find it, when we gather together as a church and when we take communion, it forces you to be seen and to see others. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. The enemy will devour you and lead you astray and life will overwhelm you if you try to do it alone. And so when we gather, church, we take communion. One of the reasons we have stations and we like people to walk to the stations and if there's physical limitations, we'll get you the communion elements. But one of the reasons we like to see people moving to the stations is because it forces us out of our bubble, it forces us out of isolation, and it, it reminds us that we are the church, the body of Christ. It forces us to be seen by others. Some of you don't want to be seen by others, but you need to be. You need to know that you're not alone, that we are in this battle together, that, that we have been beaten down week in and week out by our own sin and, and the sins of others and the, the, the hard realities of life. And so we gather together and we need other people to see us. When I come to the table, I need you to see me, your pastor, and, and I need the Holy Spirit to prompt you and remind me, there's my sinning pastor running to Jesus to be reminded that he's forgiven by Christ and Christ alone. Amen? So when we celebrate communion, we're celebrating a present reality that God is creating this new community of brothers and sisters that we are actually here united around Christ not secondary doctrines. A lot of churches separate and, and silo themselves based off of their certain doctrinal particularities or their political leanings or affiliations or their music preferences, right? Or their, or their preferred preaching style. Whatever it may be, oh, church, we are so foolish in and of ourselves in our flesh, Right? I mean, we, we've been there, right? Where you want to find a church that meets your needs this way or that you agree with this or, or, you, or you appreciate this or that thing. But when we take communion, church, we are reminding ourselves, we are reminding each other that we're united in Jesus. How much more powerful is that than being united whether or not we use drums? Eh? We're united in Jesus. How much more important is that than if we preach exegetically or topically or whether or not we use big Greek words or we're united in Jesus? How much more important is that than if we have this ministry or that ministry or don't do this ministry or don't do that ministry? We're united in Jesus. How much more important is that than if we are trying to get everyone to vote a certain way when the election comes? We're united in Jesus. How much more important is that than all of the baggage or preferences or opinions that we bring in. When we take communion, we're celebrating the present that Jesus is building a diverse community. Ethnically, socially, politically. It's amazing to see a Republican and a Democrat taking communion together. Amen! Where does that happen? In the church. Because we're united in Jesus. And so we celebrate what he is doing. And, and you know, if you're a part of a family, that's hard. You guys don't want to go to family dinners and have arguments over politics. Nor do you want to come to church and do that. But the amazing truth is that we're united in Jesus and we're figuring it out together. 
So what does Park Community Church believe about communion? Kind of as we talk about the church, that when we celebrate the present, what he is doing, we're celebrating the family that he's building. A couple things that we believe here at Park Community Church about communion. We do not believe in transubstantiation, which is that the elements turn into the body and blood of Jesus. And I mentioned that already when Jesus says, this is my body. We don't believe that he's saying, this is my physical body. That it actually turns in, that the, that the elements change. That the molecules of the juice and the cracker change and turn into his body. We don't believe that. We don't throw stones at traditions that believe that. We just don't believe that here. And so it's pursued a little more casually here than maybe you're used to if you grew up Catholic. Um, we also don't believe in consubstantiation, which is kind of the, traditionally it's the Lutheran view, which the presence of Christ is in, through, and under, and around it. So there's kind of this mysterious, mystical presence of Christ in the elements. So again, we treat it a little bit more casually here. We believe that it's bread and juice. And that bread and that juice symbolize for us who Jesus is and what he has done. And so, you know, when you come up and you take it, if you take the last cup, are you allowed to move the tray? Yes, you are. We, we don't need an ordained priest to touch the elements or remove the trays for you. Again, no throwing stones at other traditions. We just want you to know what we believe here at Park Community Church, that these are elements given to us to symbolize who Jesus is and what he's done. And this is a significant event for the church, but it's not this like extra spiritual holy thing that, that we have to wash our hands a hundred different ways before we touch the elements. We actually use gloves. The people who prepare the elements use gloves, so no germs on those crackers. We don't believe in transubstantiation or consubstantiation. We think that this is a symbolic reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done. Why do we take it weekly? We take it weekly because we think this is what unites us. I mean, oftentimes people push back on taking communion weekly thinking it'll become really boring and it'll lose its significance and meaning. Well, we sing weekly. We preach weekly. We eat, we drink coffee weekly. We eat bagels weekly. So I don't know that the argument of it losing its significance is a good one because, well, then why do we preach every week? Well, we're going to actually talk about that next week. But, but we do it weekly here, and it's not right or wrong. Other churches that don't do it weekly, that's fine. I grew up in a tradition that we did it monthly, and that was fine. We've chosen to do it weekly here at Park Community Church because we think it's a foundational forming thing for our community that when Jesus said, when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me, that we should take him seriously with that and say, when we gather together, we're going to do this in remembrance of him. And we do it weekly because it helps to form our identity you've been around Park Community Church for a while, hopefully you know our identities. It, it's, our mission is to be and make disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. And our vision is, is how we do that, by living as a family of sons and daughters who pursue God, brothers and sisters who practice his commands, and neighbors and witnesses who, who proclaim his gospel. So when we gather and take communion, we're actually expressing those identities. Sons and daughters who pursue God. Communion is an act of pursuing God saying, if you, Jesus, have told us to do this in remembrance of you, to, to, that the cracker would remind us that you fill our spiritual hunger and the cup would remind us that we have been forgiven by your shed blood, we are pursuing you when we take communion. We do it to practice our identities as brothers and sisters who practice his commands. Jesus has commanded us 
to take communion in remembrance of him. So we actually just want to practice that command and do it as a family. And then we also do it as neighbors and witnesses because we have people who come into our fellowship on Sundays who aren't believers. And, and when they actually see us coming to the elements, it's a witness to them that there's something different about being a Christian. That, that, that you have placed your faith as you come to the elements. It's, it's a sign to all present, whether they're believers or non-believers, that you have made a public declaration of faith that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Hopefully that it gives you accountability to how you live with your neighbors and people who you bring to church who aren't Christians. But also it's a testimony to them. It's a witness to them that you have placed your faith in Jesus. And then just the last practical question, why do we invite kids back in to partake of it once a month? It's chaotic. It's chaotic for the kids' workers. It's harder for parents to figure out, right? Like, when do you know if your kid is ready for communion or not? Shouldn't, shouldn't the church be telling you that? No. No, as a parent, you are your child's primary discipler. So we as a church, we want to help you disciple your children. We want to help you know when it may be appropriate if we can, if we have a relationship and if you come and ask. But it's not our job to do the work of discipling your child. It's your job to disciple your child, and the church is here to help you with that. And when we do communion once a month and invite kids back into it, it forces our parents to have those hard discipleship conversations with their kids. And again, if you don't feel equipped to do that, please reach out to me and I would love to meet with you and to talk to you about how to disciple your kids through communion. But it's an opportunity for our kids to see the adults of the church worshiping. Oh, church family, how I love that my son and daughter, and I have a younger one who doesn't come back yet, but Avery and Judah, they're old enough. They come in and they take communion with us and they see you taking communion. I believe that as they grow, that will keep them loving the Lord Jesus and being a part of his church. And last week, I usually say no, but last week I let them run up and take all the leftover elements and drink all the cups and eat all of the bread. And I was just like, I don't want to fight it today. So I just let them do it. And I hope that that's going to form. I did that as a kid. I, would, I loved communion because it meant extra juice after church. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I love Jesus so much. I'm so grateful that my parents raised me in the church and didn't make a big deal out of whether or not I can drink that because here I am today loving communion. And so families, we want you to know that, that we bring your kids back in every now and then to be surrounded by this community, that they can see that these elements are here to remind us of Jesus. We're celebrating what God is doing in and through us here and now. And then lastly, we take communion to anticipate the future. So we're remembering God's past faithfulness. We're, we're thinking about the Passover. We're celebrating what God is doing here and now in us, the new covenant of his blood, forming this new community. And then we also take communion with this eye to the future, anticipating the future, the final consummation and the eternal celebration. The, the scriptures often put our relationship with the Lord into a marriage type of relationship. That, that he is that we are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ and he is the bridegroom and we will be united to him for all of eternity. And so Revelation, we're going to turn there in a second, but Revelation gives us this picture of this, this final consummation. It talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb when God's people will be reunited with him and in the, in the visible, tangible, real presence of Jesus for all of eternity. We are 
consummated, and that just means to be joined, to be united, to be one. There's this final consummation where we will be in the presence of God forever. He's present here and now, but we can't see him, we can't touch him. We will be in the presence of Jesus then. And there's this final consummation and the eternal celebration. When we take communion, that's what we're remembering. Let's turn and look at these passages as we wind down. Revelation chapter 19. It's on page 1039 in the Pew Bible. All right, Revelation 19. I'm going to start in verse 1 and go all the way through verse 10. And now try and picture the scene of what's happening here as I read. And then as we take communion this morning, remember that we're taking it to anticipate this day. Here's what the Apostle John saw in the vision, the revelation that God gave him. Verse 9, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the, Lord, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. We're getting into this picture now of the final consummation and the eternal celebration. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, so these tables here, it's a small representation, a small picture, a pointer to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true. These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. This is the angel talking, remember. You must not do that. Do not worship me. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And see, we are heading to a future when we will be reunited with God for all of eternity. Jesus will be present there with us. We will, be, we will enter into this, this relationship with him where he is present there before us. We are reunited to him. We are joined to him. We are consummated. When we celebrate communion, that's what we're remembering. Where we're thinking about that eternal celebration, that final consummation meal. It's like when you go to a wedding and there's the reception and a great meal and a great celebration that is what we are going to. That's where we're headed for all of eternity. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And now let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. Then I heard, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When you take communion, you should be anticipating and celebrating that day, church. There's plenty of pain and death and mourning here and now, isn't there? And so when we take communion, we are remembering the eternal celebration that is to come where this promise has been, has been made new and this promise has been fulfilled that all tears will be wiped away and death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So church, as we celebrate communion, as we take communion, remember we do it to remember the past, who God is, what he's done, to celebrate the present, what Jesus is doing among us here and now, and to anticipate this future when we will be reunited with God forever. And so anyone in this room who believes in Jesus is welcome to come to the table to remember what he's done, to celebrate what he's doing, and to anticipate when we will be reunited with him. If, if that's not you, if you're not sure about this whole God thing and Jesus, we're so glad that you're here, and there's no judgment if you sit there and you pass visiting the table. We're glad that you're here and we welcome you on the journey. But for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, it's here as a reminder for us. Let me pray. And then I'm going to invite you to sit for the first song and reflect on the lyrics of the song that the band sings. And then as we go into the second song, respond by coming to the table. Two, two up here in the front, one in the back. So during the second song here in this set of music, um, as you feel led, come and visit the table. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for what you've done in our place on our behalf. I pray that as we listen to the music and as we respond with the elements that you would meet us where we're at and lead us to where you desire us to be, in your presence, where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. Lord, may this be a great celebration, a reminder of the gospel, a reminder of the fact that we have been bought with a price, that your blood is enough that our sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.